Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Future Work. Today we're joined by Anthony Slumbers. Anthony is a globally recognized speaker, advisor, and writer on PropTech and Space as a Service. Anthony is a serial entrepreneur who has founded and exited several PropTech software companies and now consults real estate boards on their transformation technology and innovation strategies. He writes an influential blog at anthonyslumbers.com. He is a prolific tweeter at Anthony Slumbers, and he teaches the online hashtag space as a service, the trillion dollar hashtag course. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Anthony, you speak a lot about how technology is redefining how we work. So how is technology redefining how we work? And maybe most importantly, since AI has come along, what roles do we humans have to play now and in the future? Well, that's a very important question, and I think it comes back to we have to understand that there's a paradox about technology, that in many ways you see the world getting ever more exponentially technological, and you think, oh, we all need to become more tech. But actually, you're, that's bringing a knife to a, a gunfight. We actually, paradoxically, in a highly technological world, need to become technologically, we need to become better better humans. We need to become exponential humans in a world of exponential technology because you really got to look at what are, what are machines good at and what are humans good at. And machines essentially are good at anything that is structured, repeatable, predictable. So if you think any task, anything you do and think about it and say, could the, is this structured, repeatable, predictable? Could I write down that essentially this is if this, then that? however complicated the if-then-that's are. But if it, if it is, that is something that either is already going, being done by machines or will be done by machines. So there's no point doing any work which is structured, repeatable, predictable. But what humans are good at, fortunately for us, and certainly at the moment, even with the rise of ChatGPT and everything, which is still the case and probably will remain the case for quite a few years, what humans are good at are things like design, imagination, inspiration, creation, empathy, intuition, and innovation, abstract and critical thinking, collaboration, social intelligence, judgment. These are the primary human skills. In a world where the machines are doing everything structured, repeatable, predictable, we need to be thinking about where do we, where do we add value. And I always go back to the quotation from Picasso where he said, computers are useless, they can only give you answers. And I think it's a really important way to think about things, even with ChatGPT and the like. It is us asking the question, what is a prompt? A prompt is just a question. Do this for me or do that for me. And it's the quality of the question that elicits the quality of the response. So as time goes on, we need to spend a lot more attention on these human skills. And there's one in particular that I think we should really spend a lot more attention on. And that's abstract and critical, critical thinking, particularly in a world where Soon you're not going to be able to know whether this image is true, whether this text is true, whether this person video is true, whether someone said purport to say. So humans are actually going to have to become very good at abstract and critical thinking, the ability to appraise a situation, judge it and understand, is this true or is this, is this not true? How should I be thinking about what I'm seeing? And it's sort of the answer to misinformation. I was at a talk with Sam Altman a couple of weeks ago 
And someone asked him, well, what's going to happen with all the, you know, how are you going to stop misinformation and the like? And he said, actually, the, the, the solution to misinformation is actually humans. And it's the human's ability to understand that, hang on a moment, that doesn't sound right. And to be suspicious or, or skeptical. You shouldn't be cynical about what you hear and read. You should be skeptical about it. Is it right that this person is saying this? And I think in many ways you're getting there. If you think about teenagers or late teenagers or people in the early 20s, they are already very, very skeptical of social media. So people who grew up if you like, the first phase of social media, who might be now mid-20s. So 10 years ago, they were bombarded with all the social. And they started to understand the, the downsides of social media. So you talk to an average mid-20s person, and they're much more sceptical about social media and much more knowing about, well, I know that's a fake. Obviously, that didn't, that didn't happen, you know, and they can discern these things. So yeah, humanities matter. In a, in a world of abundance, humanity is going to be the new the new luxury. Super interesting to think about that idea of, yeah, we actually need to be more human now that everything else can be done by AI, by robots, by computers. We actually need to be more human. So the things that make us uniquely human, that is actually what's still going to make sure that we have value in the future. I'm thinking about it also from the perspective of, you know, right now when we're talking about AI, we're still talking about startups like you mentioned OpenAI and maybe even more obscure startups that have launched products that have a lot of you know opportunity for people to improve the way that they work but you know you still need to find out about it you need, you still need to sign up for it this is obviously going to change when Microsoft integrates it into their office suite as co-pilot or when Google integrates it into all of their processes you know what will the world look like once ai becomes fully mainstream it's a very interesting topic this and we have to remember one thing particularly about generative ai is generative ai as someone said to me the other day is not like software software we've grown up with software that it is structured repeatable or predictable it will give you the truth ask it what was the date of this battle and it will tell you generative ai is not like software it does hallucinate. It does make things up. And this person was pointing out that we might find it's actually much harder to integrate generative AI into enterprises than we thought. Because in an enterprise, particularly when a very process, think of a large company that's very process driven and it's all, you know, Sigma. So it's trying to get 99.999% efficient. It's all processes and everything has to be true. This is true, that is true, therefore this. Well, you can't suddenly inject in there something that's a complete fabrication because it will mess up. So I think in, in some ways we're going to find this technology is not embedded in the enterprise in quite the same way other technologies have been embedded. I see all of this stuff much more like, and, it, and it's a good term for it, co-pilot rather than autopilot. It's very deliberate why they call it co-pilot rather than autopilot. The, but the point is, this technology is like having an army of interns at your disposal. Everyone has an army of interns at their disposal and has a personalized education system at their disposal. So I need to know about X. Can you explain it to me? I don't understand the concepts. Please explain these concepts and, and take me through it. And then you have this army of interns. You can say, what do you know about this? What do you know about that? Can you go and read this document? Can you summarize this? This for me, there's all these extra capabilities that each of us has to 
frankly become more knowledge, more knowledgeable and more intelligent. You know, again, Sam Oldman talks about the price of intelligence trending towards zero. So when everyone has access to the best intelligence, um, we can do many, many things. But I don't think we should really be expecting the machines to just go and do it for us. It is much more this co-pilot thing. But also that's where growth and productivity is going to come from. Because if you take this technology and you just try and apply it to the world as it is, so we're going to take this technology and we're going to automate it. Well, then you get sort of, well, big deal. You know, you've automated it. What have you actually done? You haven't actually increased productivity much. As opposed to, well, with this technology, how can we redefine the objective and the workflow and redesign the workflow in order to leverage these new technologies? So how can we think of new ways of doing things? So this business about or replacing labor or augmenting labor is really important. And if you look back from the sort of 80s, you look at the technology boom, the IT boom since the 80s to now, everyone talks about, oh, it's, it makes it so much faster, quicker to do X, Y, Z. But funny enough, productivity across the globe, particularly in the Western world, has been pretty terrible since the 1980s. You know, back in the bad old days of the 70s and the 60s, they were having 3 4% growth across the Europe and, and the US. Growth in the US and Europe since 1980s has been lucky to hit 2%. And for the last, more than the last decade, certainly across Europe, it's been less than 1%. So we're applying all this technology to a world, but we're not actually creating very much. Does it then mean that we can work less? Is applying all this technology just meaning that, you know, we do less menial work, we do less of the small little things that, like you said, an army of interns especially AI, because AI never gets tired and will never say no, can solve for us. Therefore, we have to work less. But therefore, as humans, we're less productive. It's always a bit of a myth that we will ever actually work less. What you'll probably find is that, listening to something yesterday, someone say, well, if I'm hiring someone and they used to be able to do 10 tasks a day, but now with new technology, they can do 20 tasks a day. But what happens? Do I change their terms and say, well, you have to do 20 a day? The fundamental way to think about all of this stuff is genuinely, how can we incorporate this technology to enable us to be X times better? So we don't want to be just 10% better. And a lot of automation just makes things a few percent better and essentially just rearranges who gains out of it. Does labor gain out of it or does capital gain out of it? But what we should be doing, and what this is the interesting thing with a co-pilot idea, is thinking about, well, with these technologies, what can I do that I couldn't do before? I always say, you know, don't digitize the past. You know, don't certainly don't AI the past. You've got to rethink, what can I do now that I couldn't do before? Because that's the only way we're going to get more productivity actually out of this stuff. Otherwise, you know, if we just go down the route, just automating everything, we're really going to get nowhere. Yeah, so Harvard Business Review just did a series on generative AI, and they talked about it from different kind of perspectives, from company culture, from strategy, from productivity. And I think the common thread throughout those conversations was really around, you know, what do companies do with this, right? Like, what do organizations do with this? Because this is really easy for us as individuals to say like, yeah, let me try out this tool and let me not join a meeting anymore because I can send my meeting bot and some of the other applications that we talked about. But then you're coming to a company and like you said, like for companies to kind of implement this as 
an additional layer or maybe just benefit because a big software provider like Microsoft puts it natively into the tools. That's one thing. The real opportunity will be in completely rethinking. But how many companies in the world can really rethink the way that they work and even the product or the service that they offer? Um, And that's maybe where the companies who really start experimenting and working with AI early on and build more of that muscle and that AI fluency may have a benefit. What do you think? I think that's absolutely true. We, we often tend to believe that everyone's like us and everyone can adopt things in the same way as, as we do. But certainly my world, my world's all full of solo entrepreneurs or, or small businesses who, as, as you say, can easily adopt something and say, well, we're just going to do this. As soon as you get up to large scale, it becomes much harder. And there's a, a very good uh, technology analyst called Benedict Evans, who's always repeating the point that most enterprises are today implementing technology that startups were using 10 years ago. It literally takes that long before something becomes productized enough to be used across the enterprise. Yes, I just heard an interview with Rory Sutherland, who was basically saying that same thing, which is, it's not AI, which is the big breakthrough technology this year. It's Zoom. It's video calls. Yeah, absolutely. And you should always listen to Rory Sutherland. He's very excellent. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think of in terms of, and this goes back to my first point about human capabilities. We actually need more people across all sizes of businesses to think much more like startups and smaller businesses. So everybody thinks in terms of how can I do my little cog in the wheel better rather than waiting for this top-down process to permeate its way down the the system. The entrepreneurial company to scale and everyone needs to be sort of imbued with these capabilities that are offered by these new technologies, even in in big companies to rethink processes. Because big companies are sort of atomizing anyway. So, you know, the number of the percentage of contractors that are used by big companies goes up every year. And it's already well into double digits. In some ways, it's the, you know, the Ronald Coase thing of, you know, what's the ultimate company? Well, it's around about 150 people. How many people do you need in, within a company to do all the things a company needs to do, but doesn't get so big that it starts to become sclerotic? I think there's a huge amount to be said for what we need to do with this technology is actually a massive re-education process of everybody in the workforce. There is a genuine potential problem of this technology actually wiping out really a very large number of jobs. And it could do for a long time. And people talk about, oh, well, you know, in the 19th century, everyone started working on the farm. By the end of the century, everyone was working in towns and, you know, everyone was okay. Yes, but there was a thing called the Engels pause, where for about 40 years, everyone was worse off. And it's quite possible that we could have this new ability to create more so the sub- the general supply becomes higher because everyone can do more stuff but we haven't actually built the demand for it yet and if there's more supply than demand prices will go down labor wages will go down and we're and we'll be in trouble so we really do need a society of individuals even if they work within the, have a very core background actually think much more entrepreneurially and 
think in terms of, well, I've got my own personal interns, I've got my own personal education system, how do we, how do we make the most of it? So there's a massive educational program to go through, I think, across the board. All the way, you know, there's, there's plenty of senior managers. You can, just see, you can just see how many senior management are messing up hybrid working because they're not thinking about it properly and they're not making the effort to think about it. So there's a, it's not a case of, well, the leaders get this and, the, you know, the beginners don't. Frankly, no one really gets this. And so we all have we all have to really change the way we're thinking about how do we how do we create a bigger pie? How do we use all this stuff to augment and try and get away from the idea of technology is there to automate things? Automate some things need to be automated and a good idea to be, but essentially we need to be augmenting, not automating. It's a complicated HR problem here. I saw the CEO of IBM uh, recently saying that, you know, having people do routine tasks that AI can do is not even an option, right? We need to have this technology to kind of automate and take away the mundane work so that we can focus on the higher value work. And I think, again, that's where hopefully we will end up. So I think for sure we could talk for another hour about AI, but you did mention my other big keyword, which is hybrid and linked to that remote. Very curious to kind of hear your thoughts on hybrid, uh, remote, obviously you have a background in real estate and in prop tech, you know, how are those new working models changing the other part of the future? I think the fundamental point here is whatever anywhere anyone says, we are not going back to 2019. What we learned during COVID is some of the trends that were happening anyway could be pushed a lot, hard, a lot harder and the world of work has fundamentally changed. Now, I know this varies, varies across the world depending on and, you know, a whole range of different factors. But certainly if you take Europe and you take North America, essentially all the business across that area learned that remote working essentially works. So we learned that for maybe 70% of people, remote working, i.e. not being in a central office, functioned perfectly well. But what we also learned was what does work well remote and what we would like to do with other people. Employees in general have actually developed a much stronger idea of what enables them to be productive and what enables their team to be productive. The difficulty is that when we were all in the office, business could function. When we were all at home, business could function. Now we've got this situation, we don't know whether people are in the office, at home, in a third space or anywhere. And a lot of companies really messing, messing this up fundamentally because they're not appreciating that you cannot run a hybrid company based on the same workflows and operating procedures as an office centric company. So if your whole system is designed around essentially everybody is in the office and then you try and do that hybrid, that's not, not going to work. And so much of this comes down to Again, this is a very human a human thing. In order to make our companies work at their maximum, we actually need to pay a lot more attention to the individuals. So what are the wants, needs and desires of an individual? What are the wants, needs and desires of the team or teams they work in? How do they match with the corporate ethos and what we're trying to do? And then what type of products and services do they need to enable them to be as 
frankly, happy, healthy, and productive as possible. And it's really important to put these things together. The most productive people, not always the case, but are likely to be people who are relatively happy and, and pretty healthy. It enables them to be to be more productive. But we really need to spend a lot more time understanding what is it that makes this person, enables this person to be as happy, healthy, and productive as they are capable of being. What do they need? When do they need to be with other people? When do they need to be on their own? What, what type of uh, real estate do they need? What type of spaces do they need? What type of software do they need? What type of hardware do they need? And we really need to think of our companies. Companies are much more, much more complicated than we think they are. We try and simplify them to say, this company just do, does that. But actually, there's all this stuff happening underneath and we need to pay a lot more attention to the human needs of people and really delve into what enables someone to be productive. And it's great stuff, but frankly, not enough people are doing it at the moment. I would say probably at a maximum 40% of companies are, are actually approaching this in a quality management point of view. If you look at the number of companies that are actually doing what some of your writing says, you need to do these six things, how many of them are actually being done? Yeah, it's obviously a low number. And McKinsey just released uh, a new paper. One of the authors, uh, one of our uh, connections, Phil, you know, looking into, you know, what the best remote and hybrid companies should be doing. And then seeing that even the ones that we kind of see as pretty advanced, even they are not kind of like checking off all of the boxes, typically only maybe around six out of 10. And that's already the more progressive ones. There's just something in there, which again, to your point, is like companies are extremely difficult things, right? They're like really difficult organisms where there's so much happening at once that it's really not that easy to say, oh, we know we should be uh, we should be better in the way that we design our employee experience, our workplace experience, and then actually do it, right? There always seems to be so much in the way. Um, yeah, from your talking to companies, from your kind of observations, what do you think? What What is it that's... It's recency bias, isn't it? We like the world as it is. And we have our own operating procedures and we don't like when they become completely muddled up. But it's partly, you know, there's lots of factors in, in this, but I think it's generally an, an attitudinal thing. You know, is this a learning a learning company? What do we, what are our aspirations for this company? What What's the tent pole? What's our north, our north star? And I don't think a lot of companies really have this solidity of purpose that enables it just filter down through everything. That this is what we're we're trying to do. And there's always lots of barriers to doing things. But you know, the incentive and the, and the requirement do a lot more now is I think going to going to be more apparent much quicker because you are going to get companies within your industry. And they might be startup startup companies who are fully leaning in to how do we operate as a hybrid organization and what hardware, software and services do we need? And let's go the whole hog. We have no legacy. So we're going to start now. And if you think, well, if you were starting a company in your business now, how much of what you do today, which would you do, would you do going forward? And quite often that doesn't really matter because no one else is really pushing the envelope so much. But one of the things you definitely will see with all these new technologies is I think the impact of them is going to be quicker than some other technologies. Because, you know, we talked before about what happened when 
electric engines came in to steam-powered manufacturing. But it actually took 40-odd years for electric motors to really make a big productivity difference. But a lot of the technologies we're looking at now, actually, you can just bolt them on straight away. You don't have to completely reconfigure everything to use these technologies. So in a lot of places, people, your competitors are going to be able to be two, five, ten times more productive than you in particular tasks. And then they're going to have really distinct competitive advantage. And I think you're going to find the difference between high-performing companies and the average, let alone the, the bottom, is going to increase. If you like the superstar companies, the superstar companies can be big ones, but they can be middle size and they can be small, that are really have really thought through the processes that enable humans and machines to work together better, are going to be massively competitive. And I think that's going to be a real shock to a lot of companies that they're not competing with someone who's just a little bit better. They're competing with someone who's dramatically better. So the incentives and the motivation to actually stop and go, hang on a moment, this is clearly not working. And the answer to this new hybrid world not working well for us is not to say, well, let's mandate three days a week back and back in the office. Because that, that is operating at the macro level, whereas really you need to operate at the micro level. But it's actually thinking, hang on a moment, we really, there's a serious digital transformation and change strategy needs to be adopted now because we're not, we're going to get behind very, very quickly. And then we're, we're being in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot is changing. Uh, one of the things that we talked about, I think we, we went back and forth uh, about a little bit online is even something as simple as, again, going back to the employee experience, you know, when you're in the office, when you're working, you know, I think it was in the context of people talking about the four day work weekend, you said like, well, it doesn't really matter, right? Whether you work four days or five days, or when you're a solopreneur, you work seven days at the end of the day, you just need to do good work. Right. So like there's so many things that are going to change uh, anyway in the way that we work. You use the word ex experience there, which I think really important. If you can break down the experience of working f with your company or the experience of working in your company or the experience of, of dealing with your company, what's the experience of our customer interacting with our company? What's the experience of our individuals working with our company? What's the experience of our stakeholders, our other companies that we work with? And this whole thing around the experience design is a really important but complicated thing. It, it's a multifaceted problem, I think. And this is where it's really interesting if you look at it from my world, from the real estate world. How much can real estate impact on experience? And then how much can they do things with a company and how much does a company need to do on their own? And there's certain ways that real estate have a big impact on experience. You know, the right type of, right type of spaces for the right, right purposes. And we can create better environmental conditions and just nicer places to be. But we can't make a bad company good. But we can work a lot closer with our companies. How can we work with you to make the experience of coming into our building to see you better? It applies throughout everything. So the experiencing, again, sound in experience is all about augmentation or automation. You know, sometimes automate, but really experience is an augmenting, is an augmenting process. Just how do we make that better? And and again, it's something that needs to be something that every individual is involved in. You can't impose change on a 
on a company and you can't impose an experience on a company. It needs to be something that comes from the top down and the bottom up. Yeah, I, I like that idea. It has to be solved at all levels, but also it has to kind of come from both the company is making an effort, but also everyone on their own is going to think maybe a bit differently about the role that they have and the role that they want to take within a company, which is, uh, you know, both are probably hard to put into effect, but both probably have to happen at the same time for things to actually change. And I think, again, the reality is that most companies cannot just change overnight, right? They cannot just say, we're going to become a totally different company because we saw how this and this startup approached hybrid work or how this and this startup is practicing remote, right? You cannot just apply that to a large organization. And so then it really has to come from both sides. A company that's really worth looking at in terms of this, and you to take, you know, a, a really huge company, look at Microsoft. So Microsoft for decades, most profitable, com- one of the most profitable companies in the world made endless amounts of money out of Windows. They were completely modeled around Windows. And certainly all through Gates' time, time there, and then Bournemouth took over, and the company sort of went nowhere because it was still incredibly... Windows focus. Windows was everything. All the other things they did came back to, yes, but how does that affect Windows? And then you get Sassy and Adela come in, who's completely transformed this massive, massive company. And Windows, which always used to be at their events, the number one thing they talk about, right, let's talk to you about Windows. That would be the first thing on day one of of their big annual events. Now it's somewhere on day two most of the time. And he's completely changed the company into mainly based around cloud. Windows isn't really so important, but all the business around cloud and now with AI. He's done an extraordinary job in totally changing the mindset the mindset of that, that company. And I haven't got the details. If you Google Nodello and Microsoft strategy, there's some fantastic stuff, and he's done a lot of in- interviews explaining about how he how he's approached it. And Nadella is really interesting because obviously, you know, it's a te- it's a tech company, so you've these are very very left brain people. Even though the left brain thing actually is a myth, but let's people know what we mean about that. But he is incredibly human centric. His policies are incredibly hu- human centric, and he's really put the the humanity back into the company. And they're an incredible role model. As opposed to, I don't know, you look at someone like Intel, who used to be, it used to be Windows and Intel, didn't it? You know, Windows machine, there was Intel inside. And Intel have completely missed the boat on mobile chips. And now look at NVIDIA, the first chip company that's a trillion dollar company. That really should have been owned by Intel. They've completely messed up their transformation. So we're back at the innovator's dilemma. But I, I totally take your point. I think Microsoft is a fantastic case study. Obviously, you know, again, that doesn't happen overnight. I remember when I worked on IBM back in my advertising days, you know, we always talked about IBM as to become from one big oil tanker to like a thousand little ships so that they can make the adjustments that they need to be making. But I do agree. Like I think like Satya Nadella in most of his interviews always speaks maybe about technology, but always from the human's perspective and seems to have specifically a very keen interest in making work more human. Again, letting AI do the work that we don't have to do or that we really shouldn't be doing because it can be trained. It can be automated. Like you said, it's repeatable. It's systematic. Um, and he really seems to have that perspective. And I think he changed both the culture from within 
to transition from, right? They couldn't have landed on this big AI play if they wouldn't have transitioned to the cloud and if they wouldn't have gone for the subscription model versus what they were doing, making a lot of money upfront, getting people to pay 150 for a box that had a CD-ROM with Windows in it. So a lot of step and being able to make the transitions. It is a pretty incredible story. Speaking of incredible stories, we could talk for an hour more and probably have more stories to share, um, but we have come up at the end of our time. Uh, to close out uh, this wonderful conversation, just wanted to ask you if there is any one big thing you want to leave people with um, uh, at the end of this conversation. Well, this is sort of back to my hobby horse about, I'm really hoping that in the future, particularly in the technology industry, we start paying more attention to, to technology that makes a difference to the world. I often talk about that. United Nations sustainability goals and how much of technology is aimed at sorting out the sustainability goals, how much technology is pointed at sort of looking after climate change or mental health or really the world is so full of really, really big problems and I'd like to pay a lot more attention to dealing with the big problems rather than let's go and build the 25th um, grocery delivery app. And so what I'd actually like on, and I have a, strangely, I have a, an art background, is I'd like a big billboard, took the line from John Keats in 1880 and said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. And underneath it, so say, so build a beautiful world, go on, try. And, you know, you, we, we talk a lot about people having purpose and we've talked a lot of people about people having agency even within bigger companies. But fundamentally, if you say, well, what is my aim? I want to make something more beautiful. Go on, try that. I love it. Okay, we couldn't close on a better note than making beautiful things. Okay, Anthony, thank you so much for being on. We'll put all your details in the show notes so that people can navigate towards your LinkedIn page, your Twitter page, and your website and read more of your wonderful reading. Thanks so much for being on today. 